This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, we're ready to get started in our second half, and I think people are even still at lunch, even now, aren't they? And so I heard that the, that the plenary got out late. Is that right? And so it kind of put everything behind. But that's okay. I'm prepared for that because before we get into our subject, I want to share with you just a little bit <clears throat> about Global AFCO and what the Lord's been doing. It's pretty, pretty exciting. So this probably, they'll want to edit this out. I'm just doing this for five minutes or so uh, before I go into the presentation. So is it recording now? Okay, so they'll probably edit it out. Um, how many of you have ever considered coming to AFCO? How many of you know what AFCO is? And uh, AFCO, is, of course, stands for the Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism. And uh, it's a four-month Bible evangelism training school. And when you come to AFCO, we have a number of things that you learn. How many of you, we have some, a few AFCO graduates. Angela's AFCO graduate. Is anyone else in here an AFCO graduate? Oh, Emily in the back. And Lisa Marie is kind of like a half-graduate. <laughs> Because she came for a little while, but then she had to go. Um, but uh, if you have not ever been to an evangelism training school, either Arise or Mission College or AFCO, I want to encourage you to consider it. I mean, what you will learn in four months will change your life for the rest of your life. And um, what AFCO does is it equips you, it gives you the skills that you need to, to be able to be a witness for Christ anytime, anywhere, to any person. How many of you feel like you would want to be an effective witness for Christ anywhere, anytime, to any person, right? And uh, so AFCO really teaches you how to be a soul winner. And um, I went through AFCO myself as a student in 2004. And since that time, I went into full-time evangelism. And I've been doing that ever since. And, and it's been an amazing, incredible trip the places that I've been and the places that God has done. Some people may think to themselves, well, I'm... I'm not good enough to come to AFCO. I'm not, you know, I, I don't have talents in ministry and this and that. What I found about AFCO is that you don't have to have special talents. You don't have to be Mark Finley or Doug Batchelor or David Ashrick to come to AFCO because God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Is that true, Angela? No, I'm not saying Angela's ordinary. Um, but I'm just, actually, Angela's quite extraordinary. But do you find that that's true? And many times people have fear about giving Bible studies and witnessing for Christ. But you come to AFCO and we teach you how to not be afraid. How to go out with boldness like the disciples did and like Jesus did and share the gospel with others. And so AFCO is an amazing place. I want to encourage you to go. So we've had AFCO now for about 11 years. And um, God has done great things. We've had, I think, over a 1,000 graduates from the four-month program. And we've also started the, the, the AFCO to Go, which is a 10-day program for busy people. And if you can't come to the four-month, come to the 10-day. But AFCO, we decided that that wasn't good enough. And Jesus said, go into all the world, right? What AFCO, at stateside, we were having people from all around the world come to us. And we realized that we need to take AFCO into all the world and not just send people into all the world. So amazing facts 
has, has launched this vision for what we call AFCO Global. And uh, God has been blessing amazingly. We've actually launched four schools so far, one in England, one in Ukraine, one in that just finished our first session in India, and then we have one starting in January in Philippines. And I've been having the privilege of being the AFCO Global Director where I'm looking for locations and setting up these evangelism training schools. So this was actually our first ever AFCO Global class in Ukraine. And uh, this was our second class that took place in the fall of 2010. And then this was the third class in the spring of this year. And then most recently, we just had our fourth class in the fall of 2011. So what we do is our students go through a four-month program there just like we do here. It's the same model program. So they learn, they, they have Bible doctrines classes, Bible prophecy classes. They learn how to give Bible studies. They learn how to go door to door. You learn how to do health ministry. You learn how to do all kinds of powerful stuff. And then we send our students out going door to door doing surveys. And there were people in Ukraine that said, uh, hey, you cannot knock on doors in Ukraine because it doesn't work. And we said, Really? I said, yeah, you can't go door-to-door in Ukraine. It just doesn't happen here. And we said, man, you must have really had a negative experience with going door-to-door in Ukraine. And they said, well, you know, actually, we've never done it. Uh, but we know our people, and we know that it just won't work. And we said, okay, let us try it. for just Let us just try it, and let us see where what God does. We'll train the students. We'll send them out. We'll just see what happens. We'll pray. And so we trained our students. And on the very first day of outreach... On the very first AFCO Global School, the very first school in Ukraine, our students went out knocking on doors. And in about five hours, they got over 300 Bible study requests. Just going to the door, knocking on the door, going through a simple survey and saying, hey, you know, by the way, we're studying, offering free Bible studies to people. Would you like to know more about the Bible? 300 requests in five hours. Can you say amen? Very powerful. And they said, man, they couldn't believe it. They said, we, I said, you, you, you don't think it works because you've never tried it before, right? So we try new things. I want to tell you real quickly about a young person named Natasha. Natasha was one of our students, and at 19 years old, Natasha developed breast cancer. She developed breast cancer. And the doctors thought she was going to die, but God was helping her and healing her and bringing her into remission. And she came through our school. And she was working so hard that she started getting kind of weak and sick. And we said, you know, you should probably stop and take a break, take some time to rest and recoup yourself. And she said, I told God that if He would save my life, that I would dedicate all my service to Him. And she said, and God has saved me. And she said, I have to keep working. She says, if I don't work, I will die. That's what she said. And she was so dedicated. And her cancer ultimately came back, but now it's in remission again. But I'm just telling you, this is the kind of dedication from the young people there. God is looking for dedication everywhere. He's looking for young people here at GYC. He's looking for people like you that will surrender their, not just their hearts to Christ, but their service to Christ. Amen? And God wants to do something through you. Well, we did, just this year, I just got back. Um, we actually did two meetings, two, two schools in the same city, this, it's in Chernivtsi, Ukraine, and we had our evangelistic series in this hall that's in, in town, 
In the 1960s and 70s, it was the regional center of atheism and philosophy in, U- in Ukraine. And people would come there and they would hear uh, lectures on why God doesn't exist and why the Bible is a bunch of baloney. And that was in the 60s and 70s. But in 2011, God was using it to preach His three angels' messages. Amen? Now, earlier in the spring, we started getting threats because we were um, from the, the dominant church in the area. We started getting threats that was saying, unless the meetings are stopped, the, the violators will be punished. And we were getting these threats through Internet and all these different things. And the Ukrainian National News, which is the equivalent of CNN in America, did a story on the news uh, about our meetings. And they were just bashing the meetings. And uh, so we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. Church leaders were interviewed by the KGB, and, and the conference president even received a call from the governor of the state. Because we were using this theme, 2012 is at the end. We had about 60 billboards up across the city that said 2012 is at the end. And they were just thinking that we were fanatical people trying to you know, say the end of the world is coming. Was the end of the world coming, friends? Absolutely. And so we, we didn't know what to expect opening night. We were praying, praying, praying. The KGB even told us, you better have a guard there um, to, to make sure that nothing gets out of hand. And so we believed that we had a guard. We got on our knees and we asked God to send a legion of angels. Amen? And He did. And on the opening night of the meetings, there was not one protester, there was not one problem, and the hall was packed. In fact, we had to have two sessions, 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock, to accommodate all the people. Amen? And um, we had hundreds of people coming, many people who had never heard the Bible before, many people who had never even known who God was or never prayed in their life were coming to the meetings. And God gave us miraculous results. In 2010, I've been to Ukraine four times now, preached three meetings. And we, in 2010, God blessed. 2011, just earlier this year in May, God blessed. And then again this fall, God blessed again. And uh, God did powerful things. I want to, can I tell you one quick story? Is that okay? And then we'll get started. Ange, Viola and Angelina, these were two sisters that were actually baptized in the spring together. Now, they were coming to my meetings. This young lady, um, she's in her late 20s, and this is her, her little bit older sister. Now, her sister is married. And her sister is married to her husband. Together, they own a convenience store. And in that convenience store, they were selling tobacco, liquor, beer, and pork. I mean, about the worst combination you could get for a convenience store, right? And they, she came to the meetings. He came a couple of times, and she became convicted that she needed to give her life to Christ. And um, the more I preached, the more she was convicted. And she said, I feel like God is calling me to be baptized. She said, but I don't know what to do because I own this store, and my husband doesn't want to sell it. He doesn't want to stop giving, you know, doesn't want to stop uh, selling stuff on the Sabbath. And so I just said, look, what do you think Jesus wants you to do? She said, Jesus wants me to get baptized, but what do I do about this other situation? I said, don't worry, God's going to work it out. So we prayed with her, visited with her several times, and she just felt like it would be dishonest for her to get baptized and still own this store. She was really reserved because of her husband. On the day of the baptism, her sister was getting baptized, 
and her husband was there. This woman's husband was there. And finally, she got up and she looked over him and she, he didn't want her to get baptized. She said, I love you, she says, but I have to obey God and I have to get baptized. And she came forward and she said, I will not sell another bottle of beer. I will not sell another pork chop. I will not sell another pack of cigarettes, but I'm getting baptized and I'm going to follow Jesus. And she got baptized. Now, this is the amazing thing. Over the course of the summer, one of our Bible workers went to their home and began to study the Bible with the husband. And over the summer, the husband began to close the store on Sabbath because he became convicted about the Sabbath. Now, in the fall, her husband, when I went back there, that was in the spring, in the fall I went back to preach again, her husband came back to the meetings and he came almost every single night. Not only did her husband come, but also her mother came to the meetings. And at the end of three weeks, something miraculous happened. They became convicted that they also needed to follow Jesus. But the man said, but I have this story. He said, this is my entire life. He said, what do I do? I said, brother, if it was me, and I had to make this decision between following Jesus and eternal life, or operating a store, I said, I'd box all that stuff up and burn it. That's what I told him. He said, I said, I think God wants you to get rid of it all and give it all up for Jesus. And God is going to take care of you. I promise you. And I told him stories. And he said, man, he said, I don't know. It's such a difficult decision. After, the, towards the end of the meetings, we sat down. He said, I realize what I've got to do. He said, but it's difficult. He said, but I promise you on Sabbath morning, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be baptized. And so Sabbath morning came, and sure enough, he was there. And I said, brother, what happened? He said, yesterday, he said, I boxed up all my pork, I boxed up all the beer, all the liquor, all the cigarettes, and he said, and I got rid of all of it. He said, it was a loss of several thousand dollars. He said, but I knew I had to follow Christ, and he got rid of it all. And he said, I don't know how he's going to do it, but God's going to replace it with something else. And he gave his life to Jesus through baptism. Amen? Isn't that a powerful story? Not only did he get baptized, but her mother also got baptized. So now the whole family is following Jesus and a part of God's church. Amen? This is some of the stuff that's been happening. This is uh, our India class that just finished up. In the, um, we just had our first AFCO India graduation on December 3rd, uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, I was there for the graduation and you can see we have a building there, and we trained already 40 pastors in a four-month program, and they're now going to their, back to their homes in India preaching the gospel. Can you say amen? Powerful stuff that God is doing all around the world. And so we've had a total of almost seven international classes now, and we have more planned for the future. So keep AFCO in prayer. Maybe God's calling you to go to AFCO. Go to our website, afco.org. And check it out. Amen? How many of you are going to do that? At least, I'm not asking you to sign up. I'm just asking you to check it out. Can you check it out? And let God do the convicting. I don't want to convict you, but I want to encourage you to follow the voice of Jesus wherever He calls you to go. If it's AFCO, if it's Arise, if it's Mission College or Emmanuel or Life, wherever God's calling you, follow His voice. Amen? Follow His voice. All right, well, we're going to get into our second subject for today. And uh, I've entitled it, What on Earth Are You Waiting For? The first session we looked at, What on Earth Is 
He waiting for? And what is He or who is He waiting for? He's waiting for us, right? And so what I want to do in this second session is I want to look through the sanctuary. I, the subtitle is The Sanctuary, Surrender, and Seeking the Spirit in the Last Days. And we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit through the sanctuary. We're going to look at three temples that God wants to fill with His glory, fill with His Spirit. And I think that you're going to be pretty amazed at this study. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's amazing how God sometimes brings things together. Amen? And I believe that God has brought this study together, and I believe it's going to be a blessing for you, and it's going to be practical. Uh, towards the end, we're going to look at some very practical stuff. So we're going to begin, and uh, we're going to have prayer together. So I want to invite you to bow your heads as I pray. In fact, why don't we kneel? Can we kneel? <clears throat> Father in heaven, once again we're thankful to be here this afternoon after lunch and oftentimes after lunch our bellies are full and our minds are dull. We ask you to awaken us with your spirit. We ask you to draw near to us and to help us see the precious truth that you want us to see. Speak to our hearts today and Lord may we be convicted of what's necessary and lacking in our own life, but may we be encouraged by the promise that you have for us to provide everything that we need to have a vibrant relationship with You. You've provided the promise that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the last days. And so I want to ask today that Your Spirit would draw near to each person here and to me as I speak. And we seek Your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What on earth are you waiting for? The sanctuary, surrender, and seeking the Spirit and the last days. It's very interesting, as I was studying this out, I found that God wants to, or the glory of God rather, is revealed in three different temples in Scripture. Actually, there's four, but we're just going to talk about three. There may be more, but these are the ones that I specifically want to look at today. And I'm just going to give them to you up front. The first temple was the earthly sanctuary in the Old Testament. How many of you are familiar with the Old Testament sanctuary? All right. And we're going to briefly cover that. The second temple that we find was in New Testament times, and it's Jesus in, in working in conjunction with the heavenly sanctuary. But there's a third temple that that's going to be the primary focus of our study. We're going to hit the first two pretty fast and then jump to the third. But the third one is the third temple in the last days is God's people in the end times. And you're going to find this quite interesting as we go through this. So there's three temples. What are they? What's the first one? The Old Testament sanctuary. Secondly, what is the second one? The New Testament, the heavenly sanctuary, and, and Jesus as the temple as well. But then the third temple in the end times is which? Us, God's people. And so what, what we're going to look at within this is how did the Holy Spirit, how was He playing a role in each one of these temples, and how does He want to play a role in our lives? How does He make us the temple of God in the last days, and what's necessary for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you with me, yes or no? All right, so we're going to get started here. Uh, The first one is the Old Old Testament times, or the earthly sanctuary. Now, in Exodus 25, verse 8, let's read this text together. God says, "...let them make me a sanctuary..." 
that I may dwell among them. <clears throat> you know, what's very powerful about this passage is that this passage says so much about the character of God. Do you know why? Because in the beginning of time, Adam and Eve betrayed God, right? And they cast humanity into rebellion. Now, let me just give you a very brief scenario of this. When God loves somebody or loves something, what's, what is, the Bible says God is what? God is love, correct? And so when God is love, the, the Bible says that the very essence of what love is is defined by who God is. Does that make sense? So when God loves something, like for instance you, when He loves, is how much love does He give? He gives all of it, but and He gives unconditional. But what's the if you can measure it from like zero to whatever? What would the level of God be? Love of God, infinite, right? When God loves us, He loves us how much? Infinitely, correct? Now think about this: when you love someone, when you, for instance, if you have some young man or some woman, young woman that you're interested in, and you get to know that person, and you ultimately fall in what? Fall in love with that person, right? When you fall in love with that person, if that person later on turns their back on you and they don't love you anymore, does that cause pain in your heart, yes or no? If you're walking down the street and someone bumps into you and they say, hey man, what's your problem? What are you doing? You know, And, and they just chew you out and they just jump on your case, does that really bother you, yes or no? It, it might bother you, right? But it's likely that you don't know that person that well, so it's like, who are you, man? You know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't really affect you that much. So, the level of pain that you feel, here's my point, the level of pain that you feel about somebody is determined by the level of love that you have for that person, yes or no? The more you love, the more pain you experience when that person hurts you, yes or no? Yes? Now, for instance, my wife and I have been married, it'll be seven years, eight years, something like that. In January, okay, in just a few weeks we'll be celebrating our anniversary, January 2nd, 2005 for the record. Uh, just so you know, I haven't forgotten my anniversary. And so, at this point in my marriage, would it hurt me if my wife were to say, I don't love you anymore? Of course it would. If I was married to my wife for 50 years and then she told me that, would it hurt even more? Yeah, it would hurt even more. So I want you to think about this. When Adam and Eve, God loved Adam and Eve how much? Infinitely. So when they sinned in the Garden of Eden and they turned their backs upon God, what was, because God loved them infinitely, what was the level of pain that God experienced in His heart for them? It was also infinite. Does that make sense? And so Adam and Eve, now let me ask you another question. Let's bring it a little closer to home. When you sin in your life, when you choose your friends over God, when you choose your boyfriend, your girlfriend over God, when you choose Facebook over God, when you choose your, your career or your job or your schooling over God, you know, you, you have a test tomorrow, so you decide today to skip your devotions so that you can study for that test that you have tomorrow. When, you, when, God, when we sin against God, what is the level of pain that He feels in His heart? It's infinite. Does that make sense? Now, did God know beforehand that Adam and Eve would sin against Him? Yes or no? He knew beforehand. Why did God even create them if He knew that they would sin? 
Here's why. Because the love that God wanted to express to them, the love that He wanted to give them, the love that He wants to give you and I today is greater than the pain He knew that He would experience through Adam and Eve bringing sin into the world. Isn't that an amazing thought, friends? God loves us so much that He's willing to go through infinite pain to have us. Amen? Not just infinite pain from sin, but infinite pain from seeing His Son down the cross. So what does this text say? Even though humanity had turned their back upon God and stuck a knife in His back and basically said, God, we don't want anything to do with you. Even though humanity had said that basically, or they had caused infinite pain to the heart of God, God still said He wants to what? Dwell among us. What does that say about the love of God for you today? What does it say about the love of God for me today? Something very beautiful, something very powerful. Wouldn't you agree? God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to dwell with us face to face, but because of sin, He has to dwell with us, not face to face, but through the what? Through the sanctuary. Now, <clears throat> that, was a, that was a side note. I hadn't even planned for that. And so Exodus 25.9 tells us exactly how that sanctuary was built, does it not? God told Moses, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall what? Just so you shall make it. So God gave the specific instructions of the sanctuary. <clears throat> now you guys are probably familiar with the basic Old Testament sanctuary. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But you have the altar of burnt offerings, the laver, then you had what was called, what was this section called right here? The holy place. And there were three levels of furniture in there. The, the candlestick, the altar of incense, and table of showbread. And then you have the most holy place. And inside the most holy case, place, there was a case, right? In the holy place, there was a case. And it was called the what? The Ark of the Covenant. And what was inside the Ark? The Ten Commandments. What was on top of the Ark? The mercy seat. What was on top of the mercy seat? The presence of God, right? And so, this is going to be a very base. We're going to talk a lot about the sanctuary in these two classes. So, what we know from the Bible, I'm just going to cover these basic things. The earthly sanctuary was a figure of the what? Was a figure of the heavenly. The sanctuary that God told Moses to build on earth was according to the pattern of the one that was where? That was in heaven. Yes or no? Hebrews 9.24, Christ has not entered in the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but where? Where did Christ enter? Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So what was the purpose of the Old Testament sanctuary? Psalm 77.13, I want us to read this text together. Can we? Are you ready? Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. What's, what's in the sanctuary? His way. His way of what? His way of salvation. Now, if you want to know something about salvation, if you want to know anything about anything, you need to study the sanctuary. Why? Very simply this. Let me read this quote to you. The Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. But notice what she says here. It opened to view a what? Complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand was directing the great Advent movement 
and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of His people. So what does it do? It reveals a complete system of truth. It's connected and harmonious. And it reveals what? Present duty. Are you with me, yes or no? So does, if, you know, the sanctuary reveals the truth about prophecy. It reveals the truth about prayer. It reveals the truth about the end times. Just about anything you could want to know that has to deal with the truth of God, if you will study the what? Sanctuary, you will find that truth somehow embedded inside the sanctuary. So that's what we're going to study today and, and our connection with the Holy Spirit. So we want to ask the question, how was the earthly sanctuary completed? Please turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. And how was the Old Testament sanctuary completed? Exodus 35 and verse 4 and 5. Are you there, yes or no? I hope you brought your Bibles. If you didn't, you better look on with somebody. Or you better whip out those smartphones and don't text and don't check Facebook and don't play some racing game. But look up the Bible, okay? Alright, Exodus 35, verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, When Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a what? An offering of the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. Now jump over to verse 21 and 22. It says, Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for its service and the garments. And they came, both men and women, and they brought as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces and jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. So how was it that the Old Testament sanctuary was constructed? Where did the materials come from? It came from what? Sacrifice and what? And service. People who had a willing heart. Do you suppose that in the last days... In order for God to complete a great work upon the earth, do you suppose that His people need to make some kind of sacrifice and offer their service, yes or no? Do you suppose that that's a possibility? Now, what was it that the people sacrificed? They gave up two things. All of what was necessary and some of what was unnecessary. I'm sorry. Some of what was necessary and all that was unnecessary. Did you see the list of things that they gave for the Lord's service? Does some, some of us have a problem with some of these things today? It says the necklaces and the rings and the jewelry of gold and all these different things. Does God tell us in His Word that those things are not needed in His people? Absolutely. That's a side note, but I won't charge you for that one, okay? So the Bible tells us that through sacrifice and service, the people of God built the Old Testament sanctuary, which was to reveal the glory of God upon the earth. Are you with me, yes or no? All right, we're just building here. This is not anything really that new, but we're just building. So what happened once it was completed? Flip over with me to Exodus chapter 40. Now, this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting, and then we're going to move into our second point. Verse 9, he says to Moses, And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be what? 
it shall be holy. So basically, this is what happened. God said to Moses, I want you to set up the earthly sanctuary. And he says, what, what is in the sanctuary? What does it teach us? The way of salvation. Yes? And so then, once Moses set up all the furniture in the sanctuary, then God says, I want you to take some oil, which is a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit, and I want you to anoint all the furniture in the sanctuary. Are you with me so far? Moses did this, and I want you to notice what happens in verse 33. After he, had, he raises it all up and he anoints it. Verse 33, And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle on the altar, and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses did what? He finished the work. Now notice what happens next. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of who? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the what? It filled the tabernacle. Now, what is oil a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. Moses anointed the Old Testament sanctuary with the oil, which represents what? The Holy Spirit. And then what happened after that? The Spirit of God came and the glory of God did what? Filled the temple so greatly that no one could enter in. Are you with me so far, yes or no? I mean, we're just setting a basis here. Now, it's interesting. We're told that in like manner, what is the character or the glory of God? To Moses, the character of God was revealed as His what? As His glory. In like manner, we behold the glory of Christ by beholding His what? His character. So when the glory of God filled that Old Testament sanctuary, in reality, what was filling the sanctuary? God's character. Why? Because the glory of God was revealed in the sanctuary when it was set up and inaugurated or anointed by the high priest because it was a system on the earth that would reveal the what? The character of God. Do you remember what we talked about earlier, right? That God set up the sanctuary because He wanted to what? Dwell with His people. Are you with me, yes or no? Or am I losing you? Does that make sense? So once that system was set up, it was anointed by the high priest. Keep that in mind. And then the Spirit of God came because now, in the Old Testament, God had something on the earth that would reveal His character. The sacrificial system, which ultimately revealed who? Which ultimately revealed Christ. Are you with me so far, yes? Alright, so the first tabernacle and the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the first temple and the Old Testament times was the what? The earthly sanctuary. And God anointed it with His Spirit and His presence was there and His character was to be revealed to all the earth. Right? Alright, now we're going to move on to number two, the second one in the New Testament times, which was Jesus and also the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? Flip with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're just going to do a little Bible study. John chapter 2. <clears throat> if I put all the text on the screen, you guys get lazy. And I don't want you to be lazy. Right? John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus, are you there? Got to turn quickly. John chapter... What in the world is that? He's showing a video or something. Maybe we should all go over there. No, I'm just kidding. What's that? 
Maybe somebody could run over there and tell them real quick. Just turn it down a little bit. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus, what is the second temple? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this what? This temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build the temple. How will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of what? His body. Did you know that in the Old Testament sanctuary and through the life of Jesus, you can find that in the life of Jesus, He fulfilled all the elements of the sanctuary system. Did you know that? Let me show you this very quickly. Now, we're going to look at it through the life of Jesus. So, what is the first section of the sanctuary? The altar of burnt offerings, yes? So, what would happen at the altar burnt offerings? What would they do? They would bring a lamb when they had sinned. Come on, you guys said you knew about the sanctuary. And what would they do? They would have to, just imagine, could you imagine that if every time you sinned, every time you said to your spouse something negative, every time you lost your temper, every time you yelled at your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or every time you compromised God's truth, that everyone in your neighborhood would know what you had done. I mean, could you imagine that? That everybody would know that secret sin that you did. That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? How many of you think you'd probably sin a lot less if you had that experience? If, if, you're, if everybody in your house knew what you had done when you were alone, right? But that's what they did. And so they would bring the lamb, and the Bible says they would lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and then he would kill it. But before he would kill it, what would he do? He would confess his sin on the lamb, right? Now, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29, we won't look there, but I'll just tell you, you can write it down. John 1, 29, that Jesus is the what? Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? So the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus. God says, the Bible says, Romans 5, 8, 9, God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us, okay? So you find that Jesus is... Um, the altar of burnt offerings or the sacrifice, Jesus is the what, everyone? Jesus is the Lamb. Then you have the laver in the Old Testament sanctuary. In John 1, 30-34, the Bible tells us that Jesus went down to the River Jordan and what happened there? What did, happen to, what, what did John the Baptist do? He baptized Jesus, right? And when Jesus was baptized, when He came up out of the water, what came down from heaven? the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and landed upon Jesus. And there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved what Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? So in the laver, we find that this Jesus is represented the laver when He was baptized by water and by the Holy Spirit. Where did the Spirit lead Him after His baptism? Into the what? Into the wilderness, right? And did um, so whenever you're baptized, does that mean that all your problems go away when you follow Jesus? Does it mean that, that I never have struggles and temptations again? No, the greatest temptations of Jesus were after his baptism, right? So don't deceive yourself into thinking because I'm following if I'm following God, that because I'm tempted, that means that I'm not doing the right things. If you're tempted, it means you are doing the right things, right? Because the devil tries to, to tempt you to cause you to stray away from God if you're doing the right things. All right. 
So the labor represents baptism and the Holy Spirit. Then you have the two compartments. And what are they? The holy and the most holy place. Yes? And in the, whole, in those two comp- or in the holy place, there's three pieces of furniture. What are they? Table of showbread. Secondly, the altar of incense. I'm testing you guys. Some of you are not passing the test. And then the third one is seven branch candlestick, right? The golden lamp stands. Now, what about each one of these? What about the table of showbread? Well, Jesus said what? I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live how long? He will live forever, the Bible says. Now, what is that bread a symbol of? Does anyone know? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And Jesus, the Bible says, He's also the what? He's also the Word. And the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and did what? It dwelt among us. So, that bread in the sanctuary is a symbol of Jesus, who is the living bread, but it's also a symbol of what? The Word of God. Yes or no? Now, it's interesting. This is a little bit of trivia for you. Let me just back up here. I'm backing up more than I wanted to. All right, you have on that, low, on that stand, some people ask the question, how do we know this bread, again, represents what? Jesus is the bread of life, but what else? The Word of God, correct? In the Christian life. Now, I'm about to show you guys some powerful stuff, so bear with me. We're just, again, setting a foundation. Sometimes people say, well, how do we know how many books are in the Bible, right? How do we know that there's not some missing books, like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or some of these other books, right? Well, there's a little bit of trivia. Now, I'm not, I'm not stating this as just absolute fact, but I think it's very interesting that in the sanctuary, you have two stacks of bread. And how many pieces of bread were in each stack? Do you know? Six. So you have a stack of six and a stack of six. How many books are in the Bible? 66 books. Now, I'm not saying that that's a fact. I'm not, I wouldn't preach that necessarily. But I'm just saying to you, it's kind of interesting that God would design it that way, don't you think? All right. So that represents the bread, the table show bread represents the Word of God, right? Let me jump past all this, come back to my current slide. All right. Then the next part uh, is the what? Seven branch what? Candlestick. Now, what did Jesus say in John 8.12? He said, I am the what? I'm the light of the world. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus would say that. So, remember what I said before. If you want to understand the Bible, what do you also have to have? You have to have light, don't you? You have to have the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because I want to share that with you a little bit more deeply. But Jesus, the light of the world... Can you see how through the book of John, Jesus fulfills all the symbols of the sanctuary, yes or no? Can you see it? Now, then there was the third part, and what was it? The altar of incense. Now, in John chapter 17, you find Jesus praying earnestly for His disciples and then all the believers in the world, yes or no? Right? John, I believe it's Hebrews 7.29, says that He ever lives to make intercession for us. Can you say Amen. So the primary role of Jesus, everything that Jesus does is to attempt to ensure that you will be in the kingdom of God. Can you say amen? Jesus is our priest. 
He's kneeling before the throne of God and He's praying for every one of you. Do you realize that? Jesus wants nothing more than for you to be in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen? Alright, so Jesus as the intercessor. Now, I want to show you something very powerful. Watch this. Remember what the Bible said, Psalm 77, 13. What does it say? It's on the screen. Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary. Now, in the most holy place, you had the Shekinah glory, yes? The presence of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant. On each side of the Ark of the Covenant, you had a golden angel that was built on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Now, what did that symbolize in heaven? Remember, the earthly sanctuary is a model of the one where? In heaven. So if there were two golden angels standing beside the Shekinah glory in the earthly sanctuary, in heaven, what does that represent? Two literal angels, the covering cherub, that stand on either side of the throne of God. So the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, represents God's throne where? In heaven, correct? Now, so the most holy place represents heaven where God is. Yes or no? Alright, now, watch this. When Jesus became a man, He left where? He left heaven, and He came where? He came to this earth. Correct? And He lived a perfect life. Jesus studied the Bible, He prayed, and He let His light shine before men. Yes or no? And he lived a perfect life for 30 years, correct? Then he went where? To the river Jordan, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And then after three and a half years, where did he go? He went to the cross, where he was crucified as the Lamb of God. Can you say amen? Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary, correct? Now when he finished that death, He went back where? To heaven. Now, I realize when He went to heaven, He went to the holy place, but in this particular perspective, heaven is represented here. Does that make sense? So don't think I'm practicing heresy. I'm not. Jesus did go to the holy place, and then in 1844, He went to the most holy. But Jesus, the point is here that He went back where? To heaven. And He made the way. You see, in the sanctuary, in the Old Testament sanctuary, where was the... Where was the place that the person could go to? For instance, let's just suppose that I, my name was Joseph and I'm from the Old Testament and there's the sanctuary in the middle of the camp. And I said, you know, uh, I don't really want to go through God's way. I want to see God now. And so I went to the sanctuary and I rushed in and I pushed my way past the priest and I ran into, through the courtyard, through the holy place and into the most holy place and I said, okay God, here I am. I'm here to see you. What would have happened? I would have died instantly, right? Instantly killed. And even only the high priest could go in and his sins had to be completely cleansed before he could step foot into that most holy place because he was going in before the presence of God, yes? So, in the sanctuary, the only place that I could go would be where? That's the furthest I could go on my own. Does that make sense? I could only come to the foot of the cross. But Jesus came from heaven and He met us where? He met us at the cross, which was as far as we could go on our own. And He said, look, you can't come to Me, so I'm going to come to you. 
You can't come, you can't make it to where I am, so I'm going to come and get you. Amen? Isn't that powerful? Jesus said, I'm coming for you. He came the first time on the cross. He's coming the second time in the clouds. Amen? So Jesus came to get us, and He came to take us through this process. And so, once we come to the cross, then we're what? We're baptized, and then we enter into the Christian life. Yes? Where we, so we receive, uh, in the courtyard, we see the sacrifice of Christ. Then in the holy place, we see the Christian life. And then Jesus prepares us through the holy place to enter into His presence once again to live forever. Amen? Now, we're going to take this and we're going to break it down a little bit more. Are you with me? So I'm going to show you the same thing again in just a little bit of a model. So how does the Holy Spirit play the role in this? Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit, yes? In number one, Christ left heaven to become a man. I just wanted to show you the overview. Now we're going to break it down. Luke 2.25. Do you know what that text says? When Jesus left heaven and came to the earth, was the Holy Spirit involved, yes or no? Of course it was. The Holy Spirit was involved. Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. We just had Christmas. Luke 2 and verse 35. Luke 2 and verse 35. That's not the right text. Why do I have that? Um, is that right? Let me see here. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Luke 1.45. I just had, I put the wrong number there. Luke 1.45. And the angel answered and said to her, Mary... The Holy Spirit will what? Come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the what? Son of God. So was the Holy Spirit involved with Christ leaving heaven and coming to the earth? Yes or no? Absolutely. Then, it's interesting. I want you to note this text because we're going to come back to it. Psalm 40, verse 8. Do you know what that text says? I delight to do Thy will, O God. Yea, Thy law is within my what? From the birth, from the time of the birth of Jesus, was the law of God written upon the heart of Jesus, yes or no? Absolutely. So Jesus came to the earth, and Christ lived a perfect life through the Holy Spirit's power. Now, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, did He not? He led Jesus into temptation, did He not? Here He led Him into the wilderness where He was tempted. And how did Jesus overcome those temptations? Through the Word, through what? Through prayer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes or no? Yes. Then once again, Jesus, at 30 years old, went to the labor of the Jordan River and was baptized with the water and the Spirit. Correct? Then Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Did the Holy Spirit lead Him to the cross? Yes or no? He submitted to the will of God. He said, not my will, but... Thy will be done, correct? He submitted, and did the Spirit strengthen him, yes or no? Absolutely. So what I want you to see here is that the Holy Spirit was active in the life of Jesus from the time of his birth all the way to his death. Amen? Now what do you suppose I'm going to say after this? The Holy Spirit must also be active in whose life? Our life today, if we're to make it all the way back to heaven. Yes? All right. So then, once again, Jesus went back to heaven to be our high priest. Now, did you see that from the sanctuary, yes or no? You see how Jesus, through His life, fulfilled all the aspects of the sanctuary. Do you see it? Okay? Now, watch something very interesting. 
At the end of Jesus' life, this is powerful, when Jesus completed His life, you remember, how do I say this so it's going to make sense to you? You remember in the Old Testament sanctuary, when the priest anointed the sanctuary with oil, what happened in in the sanctuary? What happened? The Holy Spirit came and His glory what? Filled the temple. And then God had the temple on the earth that would reveal His character to who? To the world, yes? Now watch this. Flip with me to John chapter 17. At the end of Jesus' life, at the end of Jesus' life, before He was crucified on the cross, right before the end of His life, John chapter 17 is very interesting. Um, Are you with me? You're not sleeping? You're not bored? Alright, good. I see you. You look like you're with me, but I just want to make sure you're awake because this is powerful stuff. John 17. Notice what he says. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. What does he say? Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify who? You. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you would have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus whom you have sent. Now notice what he says in verse 4. I have glorified you on the what? On the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, was Jesus here talking about his death? Yes or no? Not at all, because he hadn't been crucified yet, has he? But what was he talking about? How had he finished the work? How had he glorified God? Very simply this. Look in verse 6. I have manifested your what? Your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, and they were yours, and they have, uh, you gave them to me, and they have now kept your word. So what did Jesus do? How did He glorify God? He revealed God's name or His character to the world through His life, through the process of the Holy Spirit working in His life, and He revealed it through the steps of the sanctuary through the Gospel of John. Do you see that, yes or no? Alright, this is powerful. Now watch this. Now the priest, the Bible says, always daily went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. services. So when Jesus went to heaven, after His ascension, when did He go to heaven? Right there. 31 A.D., correct? He, he, He was crucified shortly after that. And did He also glorify God in His death? Yes or no? Did He reveal the character of God on the cross? Yes or no? He revealed to the world, to the universe, the love and the true character of God, that He loved them and that God was willing to give His Son for a fallen race. Amen? So He glorified God on the earth. He glorified God in His death. And now He went to heaven to glorify God there in the heavenly sanctuary. Correct? Now, in 31 A.D., when Jesus went up, you read the book Desire of Ages and other passages, and we don't have time to go through them all, but when Jesus got to the heavenly sanctuary, what did He do when He got there? Does anyone know? What? Okay, He was welcomed, and He sat down by the throne of God, but what what new role did He now take? He was the intercessor. He was the... High priest. And did you know that when Jesus went to heaven, He anointed the sanctuary? Yes? He anointed the sanctuary, so He anointed 
all of the furniture in the sanctuary when he went to heaven to begin his work as high priest. Just like in the Old Testament, he had done, that the high priest did in the earthly sanctuary. Yes? Now watch this. When the, when the priest in the earthly sanctuary anointed it in Exodus 40, what happened again? The glory of God came down. Yes? When Jesus anointed the heavenly sanctuary in 31 A.D., what happened next? He anointed it in 31 A.D. What happened as a result? The Spirit came where? The Spirit came down and God was glorified on the earth. Amen? Are you with me so far? Yes or no? Do you see that? When, when the... When the earth, in the earthly sanctuary, Old Testament, when the priests anointed the sanctuary, the glory of God filled the temple, yes? In the New Testament, Jesus is the new temple. The heavenly sanctuary is also the temple. Jesus fulfilled all the acts of the, of the sanctuary in His life on the earth. Then He went to the heavenly sanctuary and He anointed the sanctuary just like in the, in the type in the Old Testament. And when He did, the glory of God filled the heavenly sanctuary and came down to the earth and the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Amen? Powerful. Powerful, powerful. So the result was Pentecost and the glory or character of God was now revealed to the world through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the early reign and the life of the disciples. Amen? Now watch this. Remember what we said. Education 95 this is from the last one. Then there was such a revelation of the what? Glory or the character of God, Christ, as had never before been witnessed by mortal man. Powerful. Amen? But listen to this, friends. Who was, were, let me ask you, who was the second temple on earth that would reveal God's character in New Testament times? Who was it? It was Jesus. What was it in Old Testament times? The earthly sanctuary would reveal the character of God and the glory of God would go to all the world through the earthly sanctuary. And the, the second temple was Jesus. He said, he said he was speaking of the temple of His body and He fulfilled everything from the sanctuary in His life. And then He anointed the heavenly sanctuary and the Spirit was poured out. But what about the third temple in the end times? We have a temple from the Old Testament times, temple in the New Testament times, and then we have a temple in the end times. Amen? Look with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You guys doing okay? Doing well? It's 3.30. We're supposed to be done in 30 minutes, right? 40, 45 minutes. We'll be done a little bit before that, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is powerful stuff. Verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the what? Temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So in the earthly sanctuary in the Old Testament times... Did the Spirit of God dwell in it, yes or no? When Jesus came to the earth as a man and fulfilled all the points of the sanctuary in His life, did the Spirit of God dwell in Him, yes or no? He was the second temple. Then He went to the heavenly temple and He anointed it with the Spirit and then the Spirit came down and dwelt inside the life of the apostles, yes? 
But in the last days, God also says that who is the temple? We are the temple, and God wants His Holy Spirit to dwell where? To dwell inside of us. Amen? Now let's take a look one more time at the sanctuary. This is again, this is just real quick, just a recap of what Jesus did. He came to be a man. He lived a perfect life. He went to the, to the Jordan River for His baptism, and then He went to the cross, and then He went back to heaven. Yes? Alright, now, in Psalm 48, when He went back to heaven, was the law of God still written on His heart? Absolutely, it was. Now, what does He promise us? He promises to send the same Spirit to us today as He did at Pentecost when we receive Him to help us live the same life He did to prepare for heaven. In Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, quickly look with me there. This is a promise from God to us today. It's a promise of God to who? And when? Today. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, He would grant us according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit. Where? Where? In the inner man. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, and he goes on, the height and depth of the love of God. So listen, friends. Where does God want the Holy Spirit to dwell in us in the end times? Where? In us. In the depths of our soul. In other words, when he says, in the inner man, it means that the Spirit must take complete control of the life. Do you understand that? How do we get there? How do we do that? We simply make a choice. We simply exercise the power of the will. You see, we're not strong enough to resist evil on our own. You understand that? We're not strong enough to resist evil. I cannot prevent myself from becoming addicted to something out there, whether it's pornography, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, I don't, whether it's money, relations. I don't have the power. You don't have the power to do that on your own. But here's the reality. God has given us what we call, what I like to call, what the Bible calls, the will. Amen? And here's, you do not have the power to resist, but you do have the power to choose. Amen? Here's the way that God works. When I am faced and struggling with sin, if I'm battling some temptation in my life, I don't have the power to resist, but I do have the power to choose. Amen? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said that the, power, that the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of, this is John 16, sin, righteousness, and what? Judgment to come, right? So the Holy Spirit convicts, convicts me of sin, the wrong thing to do. He also convicts me of righteousness, which is the right thing to do. And He also convicts me of judgment, which is the consequences of not doing whichever one God leads me to do. Does that make sense? That's what he does. But what also he does, when I'm, I'm faced with temptation, he's convicting me of those things, yes? How many of you have felt the prick of your heart when you've been struggling with sin and the God says, don't do that? Have you ever felt that prick in your heart? Or you're doing something and God says, hey, you should stop doing that and do this. You should do this, correct? That's when he's convicting you of righteousness, right? And when you shun the Holy Spirit, then you feel that guilt, when you, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you feel that guilt feeling, don't you? 
That's because He's convicting you of the judgment to come. Does that make sense? So when I'm tempted, I have one of two choices. Either to follow the sin or to follow the righteousness that the Lord is leading me in. Okay? I do not have the strength to do that. I only have the power to choose. Now, when I choose to do that, my, I will to do it, but I can't do it. Let's say the devil's tempting me to smoke some cigarettes, and, and I'm really addicted to them, and I really want one, and I don't have the power. I'm just going to snatch that pack out of that guy's hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light it up. But I say, no, I'm not going to do it. Do I still have the strength? Yes or no? Do I have strength? No, I don't. I've just made the choice. But I say, God... I've chosen to take a stand for you. Strengthen me through your what? Spirit. So I give my will to God, and He strengthens that will, and then He empowers me through His Spirit to resist sin. Does that make sense, yes or no? So is it a sin to be tempted? Not at all. But when we're tempted, that, when Jesus was tempted, that's why He was always victorious. Because he made the choice with his will to follow what God wanted him to do, and then the Spirit would come and strengthen him. Does that make sense? When we're tempted, if we will choose and ask God to empower us, he will do it, and we will be able to walk away from that temptation without having sinned, just like Jesus. Amen? That's how the Holy Spirit works. Now, he wants to give us that same Spirit. Now, how can I have assurance that Jesus is really there for me. Watch this. Desire of Ages, page 669. You guys still okay? Alright. Notice what he says. Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. When Jesus took on humanity, could He be everywhere at once? When Jesus took on humanity, was it only for the time that He was here on this earth? Yes or no? No. Some of you look confused. How long did Christ take on humanity when He took it on? Forever. He became one of us. He is fully God. He is fully man. Jesus became a man. When He took on humanity, He could not be every place at once because He was now what? He was a man. So He promised to send who to the disciples? To the Comforter. He said, look, John 14, He says, I'm going away, but it's to your benefit because I'm going to send who? I'm going to send the Comforter. And the disciples thought, man, we cannot go without the presence of Jesus beside us, right? He's here. How could it get any better than this, right? But notice what she says. Therefore, it was for their interest that He should go to the Father and send the Spirit to be His successor on earth. No one could then have any advantage because of His location or personal contact. Watch this. By the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, He would be nearer to them than if He had not ascended on high. Notice what it says there in John 14, verse 16 through 18. John 14, verse 16 through 18. Watch this. He says, If you love Me, keep My commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you how long? Forever. And the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows Him, uh, neither sees or knows Him, But you know Him, for He what? He dwells where? In you, and will be in you. What is this essentially saying? It's essentially saying this. That through the Holy Spirit, 
Christ can be closer to us than He could be even if He was standing right beside us. Does that make sense? Because Jesus can only be one place at one time. If Jesus was standing beside you every step of the way, would that be a good thing, yes or no? Yeah, it would be. It would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, the disciples walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And they, I mean, I, I would love to be by the side of Jesus. But it can get even what? Even better than that. Jesus said, through the Spirit, I cannot just be beside you, but I can be inside you. And I can be living my righteous life out through your life. Amen? That's what Jesus said. That's the promise He gives. That is how Christ dwells in our hearts. By faith and by the Holy Spirit. And He can be so close to us, friends. It is absolutely beautiful. Now, how does this happen? How do I experience Christ in me through the Holy Spirit? Well, very simply this. You remember, Jesus left heaven. He came to the earth. And He met us where? He met us there. He said, I'm coming to you. You remember that? Okay? Now, we come to the cross. Did you know that you can't even come to the cross on your own, right? That you can't even have repentance on your own. But all, it, the Bible says that repentance is a gift of who? It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So when God knows it's the right time in your life that you're open, He sends the Spirit to begin convicting you of your sin. Correct? And you convict of that sin and you can't sleep at night and you're guilty and you feel all alone and you feel like the world is falling out from under beneath you and you start thinking about all the things that are coming to your mind and you're fearful and there's this great burden in your life because of the sin. Correct? So the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and judgment to come. Right? That's His job. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? It's good to feel guilty. Right? There's nothing wrong with a little guilt. Now, what's the difference? Actually, conviction is the better word. What's the difference between guilt and conviction? And the Garden of Eden, how do I know if it's the Spirit convicting me? And the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did they run to do? What did they do? They ran and hid, and then they covered themselves with what? With fig leaves, correct? Now, was that conviction or guilt? Guilt, now don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying guilt is a bad thing, but think about the two terms. Guilt, in, the, in a sense, is the devil's counterfeit for conviction. Why do I say that? Very simply this. Now, when I say the word guilt, I'm, I'm not... You, you can also use the word guilt interchangeably for conviction, okay? But you guys understand the context in which I'm using it. Guilt, when, the, when they sinned against God, guilt led them to run where? Away from God. Correct? And they went and hid. And God said, where are you? Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam said, I ran and hid because I was afraid. Right? Because we were naked. And what did God say? God said, who told you you were naked. Do you remember that? He says that in Genesis. He says, who told you you were naked? Because it wasn't the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may have convicted them that they had done wrong. But that guilt they experienced, the, the thing that caused them to run and hide from God was who? Was the devil. What's the difference between guilt and conviction? 
guilt, the bad kind of guilt, the wrong kind of guilt, will lead you to run away from God. The conviction of the Spirit will lead you to see your sin. Yes, that it's wrong. You need to see that sin. But then, it will cause you to see hope. Amen? And it will cause you to run not away from Jesus, but what? To Jesus. Does that make sense? So there's a difference between the two. There's the devil's guilt and there's God's conviction of the Spirit. The devil's guilt causes you to run away from God, thinking that there's no hope. God's going to condemn me. But true conviction will bring hope to your heart. And God will always forgive our sin as long as we're willing to give it to Him. Amen? So the Holy Spirit begins to draw us to the cross to confess our sins, accept them as Savior, and begin a relationship with Him. John 16, we just talked about that. And we must be, how does this work in our own life? What is, who's the third temple in the end times? We are, correct? So we also have to go through the process of the sanctuary. Jesus died on the cross literally, but who has to die on the cross spiritually? We do. We must be crucified with who? With Christ. What does that mean? It means that I have to be broken. I have to come to the point in my life where I'm willing to surrender all to Jesus. Where I've come to the point in my life where I'm tired and exhausted of running away from God and I'm ready now to run to Him. And I have to come to the point, Jeremiah 29.13, where He says, You will search for Me and find Me when you search for Me with what? With all of your heart. I have to come to the point by the Holy Spirit working in Me that I am, I am going to let nothing stand in my way of my pursuit of God. Can you say amen to that? You can only have that experience as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And if you've not had that experience, Jesus says, all, in order to have it, all you've got to do is ask. Ask. You may feel within your heart, man, I, I don't have that experience. Jesus said, begin, pray, begin asking for it. Pray for it. Ask God every day. God, give me an experience that will allow me to be broken on the cross, that will be broken on the rock. Give me an experience that will draw me to the foot of the cross so I can weep and repent before you and I can be crucified with Jesus. Let me tell you what, friends. If you don't feel like having that, that's the, that's, then that's the best time to pray for it. Amen? Many times I've not felt that. i felt indifferent. i felt lukewarm. But I kneel down and I say, God, this is how I feel. I don't feel like coming to You. I don't feel like knowing You. I don't feel like studying the Bible. I don't feel like knowing about spiritual things. But I know in my mind that it's the right thing to do. So God, I'm going to ask You to give me that experience. I'm praying to You and I'm pleading with You. Break my heart. Open my heart. And do you think God's going to turn away a prayer like that? Absolutely not, friends. Absolutely not. Every time I've prayed that prayer, I've had to pray that prayer many times as a Christian, but also as a minister, as a pastor. Pastors are not immune to spiritual lethargy. Are you understanding me? We have to plead with God, and I promise you, friends, God will give you that experience. Amen? He will give it if you are willing to ask for it. So, we have to be crucified with Christ. Notice this statement. It says, if we will die to self, we will enlarge our idea of what Christ can be to us and what we can be to Him. Amen? Are you with me? Yes? 
She says, if we will unite with one another in the bonds of Christian fellowship, God will work through us with a mighty power. Then we will be sanctified in the truth. We shall indeed be chosen by God and controlled by His Spirit. Every day of life will be precious to us because we shall see it as an opportunity to share our entrusted gifts and blessings with others. Maranatha, page 120. Now, notice what she says up here. If we will die to self, we will enlarge our idea of what Christ can be to us. Please look with me there in John 17. I want to share something with you that I believe is very powerful. John 17, and we looked at this text earlier, but Christ here is praying for His disciples, correct? His number one desire is that we as His people would know Him, and to know Him is what? What is it? I think you guys are going to sleep now. Are you thinking or are you asleep? Okay, you're thinking. Good. All right, now look with me in verse 23. This, my friends, young people, this is the relationship that the eternal God of the universe wants to have with you through His Spirit dwelling in you. He wants to be so close to you. Look at this, verse 23. He says, I and them, and you and me, speaking to the Father, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved who? As you have loved me. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about that before? Jesus loves each of you. I'm sorry, the Father loves each of you as much as He loves who? Jesus. Can you get a stronger bond, a stronger love than the Father and the Son, yes or no? Not at all. And Jesus said that the Father loves each one of us as much as He loves Him. Isn't that powerful? Now, don't ever doubt that. Why do we struggle so much? Because we doubt that concept. Don't doubt it. God cannot lie. He promised. And He loves us eternally, friends. And notice else what He says there. He says, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in what? In one. It's very interesting that Jesus, what is Jesus inviting us to? He said He wants us to be one. There's the Father, the Son, and the what? Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity, correct? That's the inner circle. Jesus, God, the Father, is inviting us, you and I, to enter into that circle. Does that make sense? Now, in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it says that that inner circle was the most sacred in all of of eternity, correct? Somebody was kicked out of heaven because he tried to force his way into that circle. Who was it? It was Satan, yes? He wanted to take the place of the Son of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're becoming deity. I'm not saying that at all, okay? We're not becoming gods. We are not gods. But Christ is inviting us into that inner circle between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's one way that He is able to do that. Not because we're something special, but because of what He did. How is it that Jesus can link humanity with divinity? How can humanity be invited into the circle, inner circle of the Trinity in, in, in that fellowship, in that, in that rejoicing, in that spiritual uh, connection, that spiritual fellowship? How is it possible? Through Jesus, but why? Because Jesus became one of us. Are you with me? 
Jesus became one of us. And because of that, He can link humanity to divinity. Can you say amen? Jesus is inviting us into that circle. And he says, look, please come. The Father loves you as much as He loves me. Don't be afraid. And He says, and if you'll come, He says, if you'll open your heart, He says in John 14, He says, My Father and I will come and we will make our home with you and we will dine with you and we will sup with you. Amen? God wants intimate, intimate relationship with you and I today. And it's all made possible through the working of the Holy Spirit because Jesus can't be here, but He can be inside of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Powerful, powerful stuff. How do we keep that? She says this, The youth have not realized that freedom and light can be retained only through self-denial and a constant watchfulness and prayer with a continual reliance upon the what? A merits of Christ. You see, friends, she says, when the Holy Spirit is breathing upon the soul, the will and the powers of the man must respond to its what? To its influence. You must respond when the Spirit speaks to you. How, people say, how do we get closer to Christ? How do we get closer to Him? How do I know His will more clearly for my life? The, the simple answer is this. When you know that He's speaking to you clearly, let me ask you a question. How many of you know of at least one time in your life when God crystal clearly spoke to you through this Holy Spirit? Can you raise your hands? I guarantee you that every person knows at least one time. When the Spirit speaks to your heart, what must you do? You must respond to His what? Influence. And when you respond positively to His influence, then His voice gets clearer and more distinct. Does that make sense? And the more you respond, every time you respond, it gets clearer and clearer and you will draw closer and closer to Him. you understand that? Yes or no? What's the problem with most of us? Most of us say, well, I just don't think God cares about me. It's not that, friends. Jesus said the Father loves you as He loves His own Son, Jesus. It's not that. It's that when the Spirit speaks to us, we oftentimes would rather cling to that sin and cling to that, that thing that would separate us from Him rather than responding to His voice. Whether it be, you know, you know, some type of habit, some type of problem, whatever it is, most of us would rather cling to it. Now, sister, you want a picture of that? Go ahead. Picture of that slide. That's 4th Testimonies, page 625, the quote I just read for the recording. Now, once we do that, we must be crucified with Him. A complete surrender, friends. Yes? Number seven, we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism to live victoriously just as Jesus did. Yes? When Jesus was baptized, did He receive the Holy Spirit? Yes or no? When we're baptized, do you receive it? Yes or no? How do we maintain the Holy Spirit? Some people say, yeah, well, I was baptized, but then I started falling into sin again. Well, the answer is very simple. Did you respond to His voice when He called you? When He told you to do something? And you probably didn't, and then you fell into sin, and then you start going through a cycle. You start crawling to God and thinking that He doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. And then you get, you get that temptation again, and you fall again, and you think God hates you, and it's a vicious cycle that we go through. What we have to do, friends, is start believing the promises of God. When God says, if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just forgiven. When He says that, He means it. Does that make sense? We've got to believe His promises. We've got to believe Him when He says that He will give us victory. All right. 
Now, um, I want you to notice this. I know this is a lot of quotes, and I don't always like to read quotes, but I found these powerful quotes. Reflecting Christ, page 107. Notice what she says. As a Christian submits to the solemn rite of baptism, the three highest powers in the universe, watch this, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, place their approval on His act. Oh, that's powerful. When you're baptized following Jesus, when, you're, when you crucify yourself and you're baptized, all of heaven places their approval on that. And notice what it says. Pledging themselves to exert their power in His behalf as He strives to honor God. Think about that, friends. At your baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit took an oath in heaven. And they said, we will pledge as long as He lives to strive to do everything possible to ensure that you have the power that you need to honor God. Amen? Amen. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, they're doing their part, friends. The question is, are you doing your part? Are you taking the promises of God and trusting them, claiming them, believing them? Are you submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you submitting your life to the principles of God's Word? You see? When we do that, we have the power of all of heaven. The three three powers of heaven pledge themselves to furnish the Christian with all the assistance he requires. The Spirit changes the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. We can't have the power if we will submit to Christ. If we will submit. Now listen, that, that, uh, that, that surrender that takes place when we come to the cross, that is not a one-time thing. That's the problem with most Christians today. We think it's a one-time thing, but Paul said, I die how often? I die daily. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ, and yet I live, not me, but Him that lives in me. But Paul says, I die how often? Daily. You have to come back to this experience every single day. Every single day. And as you come to Christ, and as you surrender yourself to Him, then He will baptize you anew with the Spirit every day. Does that make sense? What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Simply this, it means to be totally immersed in the presence of God. Totally immersed in the presence of God. And God reveals my sin to me, but then He says, don't lose hope because I'm going to put a coal of hot fire on your mouth. It may hurt just a little bit, He says, but I'm going to cleanse you. Amen? And that process does not happen once and then we're done. But the process has got to happen every single day. And when we come to the cross and we kneel at the cross every day of our life and we see ourselves for who we are and we see Jesus for who He is, then we can have an atonement with God. We can, we can have forgiveness. We can have cleansing. And then He will rejuvenate us with His Spirit and He will rebaptize us in the Spirit every day. Can you say Amen. He'll rebaptize us in the Spirit every day that we will come to Him. I promise you with my life a hundred times that if you'll earnestly seek the presence of God, I'd bet my life for any one of you that if you will earnestly seek God every day, He will be there and you'll find Him. He'll forgive your sins. He'll baptize you new with His Holy Spirit. He'll do it every day if you'll come to Him. I promise you. How do I know? Because every time I've done it, He's been there. All three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they've pledged. They've given an oath. They've taken a pledge that they will do whatever it takes 
to ensure that you have the power to overcome. Praise God. Amen? How many of you are thankful for that today? That just gets me excited, friends. Juvenated. Once we receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus lives in us through the Holy Spirit and makes us like Him as we study the Bible, as we pray, and as we seek the Holy Spirit daily. Amen? Now, once we come to the cross, then we're baptized by water, then we have to do that every day, right? We're baptized by water, but then we have to come back the next day to the cross again and then be baptized by the Spirit, right? But once we're baptized by water the first time, then we enter into the what? The Christian life, correct? Man, I'm excited. How about you guys? This is pumping me up right here. So, what does that mean? Notice what she says. The true Christian keeps the windows of the soul open where? Heavenward. He lives in fellowship with Christ. He, his will is conformed to the will of Christ. His highest desire is to become more and more Christ-like that he may say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Listen, friends, I don't want to be more like Christ. Does that sound crazy? I want to be just like Christ. I don't want to be more like Christ. I want to be just like Christ. Amen? But how do we become more, how do we become just like Christ? How do we become just like Him? By becoming more like Him every day. Are you with me? The way we become just like Christ is to become more like Him today than I was yesterday. And tomorrow I'll become more like Him than I was today. And eventually I'll become just like who? Christ. This is the process of sanctification. Are you with me? This is what the Bible says. In Thessalonians, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. Right? God wants to be sanctified. Now, how do I become sanctified? Inside that holy place, God has three articles that will help purify me, that will help the Spirit to gain strength in my life. Okay? Are you with me? Inside the sanctuary, inside the holy place, you have the table of showbread. What does that represent? The what? The Word of God, correct? The Bible, Jesus said, I'm the living bread. And if anyone eats of this bread or His Word, he will live how long? He will live forever. Um, so, let me ask you a question today. Can you have an experience where the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you more every day if you are not studying the Word of God? Yes or no? You've got to study the Word of God. If you don't know how to study the Word of God, there's hope for you. Go to Army Bible Camp. Come to AFCO. Go to some school of evangelism or some weekend event and learn how to study the Bible. But for heaven's sakes, if you can't study it, at least open it and read something, right? Read something. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you some practical tips on how you can have more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Something you can do in God's Word, how to pray, all these different things. Tomorrow's the application part, right? So we're going to do that tomorrow. So come tomorrow morning for our morning session. But you cannot expect to have a Spirit-filled life without the Word of God, correct? Without the Word of God in you. Because the Spirit, Jesus said, John 16, I believe it's verse 13, He said the Spirit will lead you into all what? Truth. Remember what I said earlier. If you try to experience the Holy Spirit without the Bible, without the truth of God's Word, what are you going to have? You're going to be a Pentecostal, right? Does that make sense? 
If you're going to go by these radical impressions or what you think are impressions, but really they're impressions of the devil, right? So the, remember what I said earlier in the Q&A. The Spirit never impresses you to do something that is contrary to the what? To the Word of God. So if you really want the Spirit working in your life, what do you have to do? You have to study the Bible and He will guide you into all what? Into all truth. The second element that is vital for a Christian to experience sanctification is the altar of incense. And what does this altar represent? Does anyone remember? Prayer, right? Revelation 8, verse 3. Speaking about the heavenly sanctuary, it said, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with all the what? Prayers of the saints. So, what does this represent? Prayer. Can you have a true experience, sanctifying experience? Can Christ truly dwell in you if you're not praying every day, yes or no? Not at all. Some people come to me and they say, oh man, you know, my experience with God is dead. I don't hear His voice. I don't sense His presence. And the first question I ask them, and if some of you come to me and say that, which is okay, I encourage you to do that, first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your devotional life like? If you're not praying, if you're not studying God's Word, these are the two elements by which God communicates with us very heavily. How is it you can expect to know God's will for your life? How is it that you can know whether or not you should court and marry this boy or court and marry this girl? How is it you can really know which major you should have in college? How is it you should know you know, what career you should pursue? How is it you can know, you know what kind of friends you should truly have? How is it you can know these things if you're not spending time with God? She said in that quote I just read, that true Christianity will seek fellowship with God. Jesus invites us to come in and have fellowship through Bible study and prayer. You know, friends, someone once said that it was the Bible. The Bible is like a love letter from God. Amen? How many of you have ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend? How many of you have had them write letters to you? Yeah? Have you had that before? You were visiting them in their home and it's time to go. The parents are watching you closely as you don't hug too closely as you're leaving. And just before you go, what does she do? She slips a little piece of paper in your hand, right? And, you're, and if, you're, if you're a guy or even if you're a girl and you're receiving it from the guy, you hope that that note is really thick, right? You hope it's like this because you're thinking, oh man, she wrote all kinds of stuff to me, right? And she's telling me all these sweet nothings. And you get in your car, and what do you do as fast as you possibly can? You know, what I used to do when Marion, my wife, when I would leave her house and she would give me a note, I would go down the road to the end of the block and I would pull over. On the side of the road, it may be like 12 at night. And I would tear open that letter and I would read it as fast as I can. I would read it four, five, six times. How many of you have done that before? When you love somebody, isn't that what you do? What if we took our Bibles and we read those as anxiously as we read those love letters from that person? What if we took the Word of God and we immersed ourselves in it? We said, God, I'm not going to leave your presence. 
I'm not going to close this Bible until you reveal something of truth to me from your Word. Something that will change my life. Something that will empower me to overcome sin in my life. Something that will change my life forever. God, I'm not going to leave until you bless me. What if we were willing to do that with God? You know, when I first became a Christian, I was a Seventh-day Adventist. I first became a Christian when I was 22 years old. When I first became a Christian, I'm not saying this to, to, to boast, but I'm just telling you to make a point. I would spend, for the first almost two years of my experience, I was in college. I only went to class about four hours a day because I wasn't working and I only had a couple of classes. And I would spend anywhere from seven to ten hours a day studying the Bible for about two years in, in a row I did this. I would spend three to four hours in prayer every day. And I, I was the kind of person that I would go to bed, like before I knew Christ, I would go to bed, I would stay up almost all night playing video games and drinking beer and doing all kinds of stupid stuff. And I would stay up till 12, 1, 2, 3, 4 in the morning. There was one time I found this video game I really liked, and I played this video game for three days and two nights without going to bed. I skipped class, I stayed at home, and I was just going like this. At the end, I fell into my bed and slept for 14 hours straight. And I read later in the news, on the news that there was a guy that did the same thing and he started having seizures and he died because his brain was overstimulated without resting. Now, why was I telling you that? <laughs> Be- yes, that's right. Because I was so desirous to play those video games. But when I found the Word of God, I gave up all that stuff. And I would spend all that time studying. And when I, I spent that kind of time, now I realize that we all can't do that. And I can't do that now because I have responsibilities. But we need to spend some kind of time. But here's what I found. The more time I spent with God studying His Word and praying and spending quality time in His presence the closer Christ came to me. You realize that? The more time I spent with God, the closer and more real Christ became to me. And there were times when I was in college and I was on my knees praying for for many hours that it literally felt like Christ, like the presence of God was right there in the room, right beside me. Right beside me. I could just sense His presence. And let me tell you, friends, you may not be able to spend all that time, but let me tell you this, the, the, the effort you put into it will be the result you get out of it. Do you understand? The more time you spend with God, you get up in the morning and you're in a rush for school, you, you have to leave, uh, you're running late because you stayed up too late last night with your friends, and you have a choice. I either have to do my devotions or take a shower. Or eat breakfast. Let's use that as a better example. You need to take a shower. We don't want smelly students running around, right? But I have to eat breakfast or I have time for my devotions. I only have time for one. And you say, well, I'll just read real quick. And you read something for three minutes and then you get up and run out the door. You've rushed out of the presence of Christ. Do you see that? And how can you expect that Christ can draw near to you in times of need when you've not spent the time with Him? Friends, spend the time with Christ. Spend time with God. Notice this. How much time do we have? We've got about just a couple of minutes. Romans chapter 8. Something about prayer. I want you to notice this. This is so powerful. It's life-changing. Are you guys okay? I've been talking a long time. Are you okay? You all right? 
Good. We're going to finish up in just a minute, okay? Romans 8, verse 26. Notice what he says. Likewise, the what? The Spirit also helps in our what? Our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. How many of you ever felt like you don't know how to pray? Praise God. Join the club. You know what the Bible says? You don't have a clue about how to pray. That's what God says. You don't know how to pray. Did you know that? You don't know how to pray. But what does the Bible say? Nevertheless, He makes intercession for us with the groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, He who searches the hearts knows what mind the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the what? Will of God. Here's what happens when you pray. You pray foolish prayers. I pray foolish prayers. But when we pray, you ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling coming back? Sometimes that happens. But when we earnestly seek God, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit takes our feeble prayers up through the ceiling, up through the atmosphere, up through space, into the heavenly throne room. Amen? It says, now he who searches the hearts knows what mind of the Spirit is. Who is he that searches the hearts? Who is it? It's not the Holy Spirit. It says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So it's not the Spirit. Who is it? Who searches the heart? Jesus. It says, because he makes intercession for the saints. And Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So when we pray, the Holy Spirit carries our prayers up into heaven, into the heavenly throne room, where Christ is already kneeling before the Father, interceding and praying for you. Amen? And the Bible says the Holy Spirit mingles our prayers with the prayers of Jesus, and they ascend before the throne of God as a sweet Savior. Amen? Oh, man, friends, that's powerful. That's what happens when you pray. How many of you, you just want to feel like you want to pray right now because of that? That's what happens. God hears your prayers because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carries your prayers to heaven. He mixes them with Jesus, and God answers them according to His will. Amen? How can you possibly expect for God to complete a work in you if you're not praying every day? The Holy Spirit leads you to pray. The Holy Spirit leads you to study the Bible. And the Holy Spirit also leads us to be the light of the world, which we're going to talk about. Now, notice this. She says this, many, even their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. Now, there are people today that have devotions every day, but they're not communing with Christ. Did you know that? That's what she just said. Some of you are reading your Bibles. You're praying, but you're not communing with Christ. Why? Is it because Christ doesn't want to commune with you? Not at all. Notice what she says. They are in too great what? Too great of haste. With hurried steps. I'm going to replace they with we. We press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps for a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of what? Strength. They must give themselves time to think, time to pray, and time to wait upon God for renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. Have you ever said, man, I know I need to get up to pray, but I'm just so tired. I know I need to study the Bible, I need to get up, but I'm just so exhausted. 
I've been working all week. I've been going to school. I've been studying for my final exams, and I'm absolutely exhausted. Have you ever had that experience before? Look, what does she say? If we'll get up, you'll get your little tail up out of bed and spend time with God, what does she say? She says, God will give you a renewal of what kind of power? Physical power. He'll strengthen you physically. He'll strengthen you. He'll give you physical strength. He'll give you mental and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of His what? Of His Spirit. Of His Spirit. Receiving this will refresh by, quicken by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ to sit down in companionship with Him. This is our greatest need. Why do you think Jesus could stay up all night and pray and then go out and heal people all day long? You know how exhausting it is to stand up here and preach? Do you know how exhausting it is to talk to people, hundreds of people that come up to you? It's exhausting, but Jesus did it every day, sometimes without any sleep. Why? Because He prayed, He spent time in God's presence, and God refreshed Him physically. Amen? God will do the same for you if you'll spend time with Him. How do I know? Because I've experienced it firsthand. How many of you have experienced it before? You stay up all night and you pray and God will give you strength. The seven-branch candlestick. Man, we've got to hurry. Can you give me five more minutes? All right, beautiful. The seven-branch candlestick. Jesus said, I am the light of the what? I am the light of the world. But friends, in the flip side of this, we're, we've gone through it with Jesus, now we're going through it with us, right? What else did Jesus say about the light of the world? You are the what? You are the light of the world. That seven-branch candlestick represents our witness to the world. Yes? Three things that are vital in the Christian experience if you want to stay alive spiritually. Prayer, Bible study, and what? Witnessing. Some of us are really good at prayer. Well, thank God for the prayer room at GYC. Amen? Some of us are really good at Bible study, but some of us are not witnessing when God calls us to witness. Right? Some of us are not witnessing. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. How is it that that seven-branch candlestick was fueled? How was it fueled? By the, by the, and, and the physical and the earthly. By pure what? Pure olive oil. And that olive oil is a symbol of the what? Holy Spirit. Now, when that lamp would get low, God commanded the Israelites never to allow that seven-branch candlestick to go out, correct? He said never let it go out. And when that lamp got low, who came along and refilled it? It was the priest. When we let our light shine before men in the world, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That lamp was a symbol of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to allow others to see Christ in us. Yes? When, when the Holy Spirit works in us and we use the power of the Holy Spirit, who will be there to refill us? Our high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen? Just as the priest refilled the lamp in the earthly sanctuary, so Christ will refill us with His Spirit and the heavenly sanctuary, or in our lives. Amen? So we have to have all three of these elements. Bible study, prayer, and witnessing if we are to be truly sanctified. Are you with me? Now, as we go, this is the work of a lifetime, isn't it? These are the things that God uses to sanctify the person. It's a lifetime work of the Holy Spirit in the life. Yes? Yes or no? And as we go through our life... Jesus lives in us and He makes us more like Him. That's what? Sanctification. Then eventually, but what has to happen? Ultimately, ultimately, Jesus 
as we are sanctified, He will become fully enthroned on our hearts and His law will be written on our hearts and on our minds. Yes? Just like Jesus said in Psalm 40, verse 8. Psalm 40, verse 8, when Jesus left heaven, He said, I delight to do Thy will, O God, yea, Thy law is within my what? Within my heart. Just as Jesus left heaven with the law written in His heart, so we have to enter heaven with the law of God written in our hearts. Amen? It's very, very powerful. I'm going to... I'm going to slip past. I'm just going to read this a little bit. Those who have Christ enthroned within will manifest Christ-like what principles. It will be evident that the Holy Spirit has begun a new life. I'm going to slip past this. Now, notice this, friends. When we experience sanctification, now coming back to the temple. Remember, the first temple was the earthly sanctuary. Second temple was the Jesus and the heavenly sanctuary in the New Testament times. But the third temple is God's what? Is God's people. You and I, yes? Now watch this. When we are sanctified, when the Holy Spirit completes His work in our lives, right? God will fill the third temple on earth with His His people and they will shine through the world and reveal His character. Now where do we find this in Scripture? Revelation 18, verse what? Verse 1. Are you with me? After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with His what? With His glory. When Jesus completes the work in His people, after we make a full surrender, Christ can complete the work of the Spirit in our lives. Correct? Now, once He he completed the work on the earth, He glorified his Father on the earth, He went to heaven and He did what? He anointed the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly temple. Correct? As the third temple, when God completes the work of the Spirit in our life, He is also going to anoint this temple, our bodies, with the what? The latter rain. Are you with me? You get it. Just as Christ anointed the heavenly sanctuary and poured out the Spirit at Pentecost, so He will anoint His people, His last temple on earth, and pour out the Holy Spirit in the latter rain and reveal His character, His glory, Revelation 18.1, to all the earth. Are you with me? Friends, today, we need that experience. Today, We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We need Christ to complete that work in us. In the courtyard, we see justification or what Christ did for us. In the holy place is what Christ does in us or sanctification of the Spirit. And then the most holy place is where Christ will take us once He's completed the work in us. He's made us totally like His character and into God's presence, which is what? Which is glorification. So the courtyard is the sacrifice of Christ, which frees us from sin's penalty. The holy place is sanctification, which gives us freedom from sin's power. And then the most holy place is glorification, which will provide us freedom from sin's presence. Amen? Powerful stuff, isn't it? Romans 5, 1-5, write it down, we're not going to look it up. 
but it basically illustrates justification, sanctification, and glorification. And he said to me, 2,300 days in the sanctuary shall be what? Shall be cleansed. And that process began in 1844. The heavenly temple was cleansed. But friends, as we near the end of time, before the work in the heavenly sanctuary is done, there's a temple on earth that God wants to cleanse. You know what that is? It's you. It's me. And once He cleanses that temple, just like He did in heaven, just like He did on the earth, once He anoints that temple or cleanses that temple, then He can anoint it. And the glory, just like the glory of, of the Lord filled the earthly sanctuary, just like Jesus anointed the heavenly sanctuary and His glory filled the heavenly sanctuary and came down at Pentecost, so in the last days, when Christ completes His work of transforming our character on this earth, He will anoint us with the Holy Spirit through the latter rain. And God's glory will fill the earth. His character will be revealed in you and in me. Can you say amen, friends? How many of you want to have this sanctuary experience with God? How many of you want God's Spirit to be working in you to complete your, His work of transforming your character and making it like Christ? Is that your desire today? You know, in the Bible the Old Testament, the priest would go into God, in before God in the Holy of Holies and he would have 12 stones upon his breast and two upon his shoulder. And on the 12 was written the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the two on his shoulder were written six names on each side of the children of Israel. And that was a symbol of something. That was a symbol of when Jesus would go into the presence of God in the last days and he would stand before God interceding for his people and he would have the names of his people written where? Above his heart and on his shoulder. Why? Because he's carrying our burdens today. He's carrying our burdens on his shoulder and before the Father. He's carrying our names on his heart before the Father because you are precious in his sight, friends. And he's doing everything he can. The judgment is not about keeping you out of heaven, but it's everything God's trying to do to get you into heaven. Amen? God wants you there. And He's given you all, all of heaven pledges to give you what you need. And all of heaven has promised that God will be there in your darkest hour. He will see you through. And if you allow His Spirit to transform you, He will change you and He will do a work in you. And He will prepare us to be that final generation that God can say, these are the ones that my work is finished in them. These are the ones that have fully allowed my spirit to take control of their lives. These are the ones that Christ is enthroned on their hearts. And these are the ones that I will pour out my spirit on in the last days. I will anoint them and they will display my glory to all the world. And then I'm going to go home and get my people. Today, friends, God is looking for you to be those people. God is looking for you and I to be that generation. And Jesus is asking you the question today, will you allow me to complete the work in you? so that you can complete His work upon the earth. God wants to do something through you. This is a story of Vera. I'm going to tell you the story and then we're, and then we're going to pray. Vera came to my meetings in the spring. And Vera was 18 years old. And Vera was ready to give up on life. She was ready to walk away from everything, away from God. 
and she had a back injury, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, yes, we can treat you, but you have to get the treatments in this city. We're the only city that can do that. She was getting ready to move away and to move to another town and to begin living a life. She was going to give up on God. She said, I didn't think God was real. I was just going to live and party and get a boyfriend and make money and do all these things. And in the four months that she had to wait for those treatments, I had an evangelistic meeting in the city. Someone gave her an invitation to come. She came to those meetings every single night. She rode the bus more than 40 miles to come to my evangelistic meetings. 40 miles every day to come to the meetings. And night after night, she wept and she cried. She said, I never knew that God wanted so much to to know me and to be intimately involved in my life. And one night, she was crossing the street to come to the meetings And there was a car coming at her, and there was a distracted driver, and the car was almost going to hit her. And she looked up, and she saw the car, and she said, all I had time to do was cry out, Lord Jesus, please save me. She said, when I cried that out, the car just almost instantly came to a stop, and it was within one inch of striking her. It was this close to the front bumper. That night, she gave her life to Christ. Amen? She decided to follow Jesus. Now, that's not the end of the story. She was inviting her mother to come with her to those meetings. And she said, everything that I found that I wanted in life, I found in Jesus. She said, Christ changed my life. So this young girl invited her mother to come with her to the meetings. Her mother was baptized. Amen? Then, after she was baptized in the spring, this girl became a student in our AFCO school this fall. Amen? And she came to the school. She invited her sister, which is right here, to come to the meetings also. She came, and her sister was baptized. Her sister fell in love with Jesus. Now, as she was knocking on doors, she met this old man. This old man, his name is Eugene. He's 80, almost 80 years old. Now, 15 years ago, Eugene went to the hospital, and the doctors told him, they said, you have terminal cancer. We were giving you two weeks to live. Go home, get yourself ready to die. And they said, we, we can't do anything else for you. So he went home, he, he, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He pulled out his Bible, and he began to read his Bible, and he began to pray. And two weeks went by, and he was still alive. A month went by, he was alive. Six months, a year, he was still alive. After one year, he went back to the hospital, and he said, They said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be dead. He said, God's done something miraculous in my life. He said, I want you to do a scan on me. They said, go home, old man. We told you you were going to die from cancer. You have cancer. There's nothing else we can do with you. And he he was shaking and he said, I'm not leaving until you do a scan on me. And they did a scan on him and he was cancer-free. Cancer-free by the work that God, something God had done, a miracle in his life. This young lady knocked on his... That was 15 years ago. He's still alive today. You see this paper he's holding in his hand, this newspaper? That's a news article that the secular city newspaper did on him about being healed from cancer. He showed me the paper. 15 years he's been alive, free from this cancer. This young girl knocked on his door and invited him to the seminar. And he said, I know why God has kept me alive. He's kept me alive to hear the precious truths of this Word and of the times that we're living in today. He gave his life to Jesus through baptism. Can you say amen? He joined God's church. Now, why do I tell you this story? Very simply this. 
Because part of the work which I mentioned to you is Christ doing a work in you. Yes? And God wants you to surrender your life completely to Him. And when you do that, He's going to do that process of sanctification in you and the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life and Christ is going to draw near to you. God's going to do a work in you. But God doesn't want to just do a work in you. He wants to do a work how? Through you. Can you say amen? God does not save you to sit in the pews of a church and to just sit idle until Jesus comes. But God saves you because He wants to do something magnificent in your life. Amen? He wants to lead you to a higher experience. And Christ is calling every one of you to do two things. To make a surrender to Him and then to make a commitment to Him that you will do whatever He calls you to do no matter what it may be. Amen? And today, as the last generation, GYC, you have to decide what decision you're going to make in your heart, what decision you're going to make in your life. Because the decisions that you make today will affect the decisions that you make for the rest of your life and they will affect your eternal destiny. Jesus is calling you today to make a decision to surrender to Him and He's calling you to make a decision to commit yourself to Him to do His great work. And I don't know what your situation is that you here since you've come to GYC. You may be a Seventh-day Adventist. You may not be a Seventh-day Adventist. You may be in the church. You may be out of the church. You may feel like you've had a conversion experience. You may feel like you've never really been able to connect with God. I don't know what your situation is, but you've heard the message today. You've heard the Word of God, and you've heard the Spirit of God speak to your hearts today. And I just want to ask you today, what prevents you from allowing Christ to transform your life? Your past sins, God can take care of those. Your history, your bad, your, your habits, your addictions, whatever it may be for you, God can take care of those. But Jesus is asking you today, won't you make a commitment to me? Won't you allow my spirit to transform your heart? Won't you let me take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? I'm going to make a special appeal today. And maybe there's someone here that wants to make a commitment to Jesus. Maybe there's someone here first that wants to surrender to Jesus, and, but you also want to make a commitment to Jesus. And there may be an issue in your life that's hindered you from fully surrendering to Christ. But today you want to say, Jesus, I'm giving that to you. Today, that issue is yours. I don't know how you're going to solve it. I don't know how you're going to deal with it, but it's yours. Today, I'm going to, I'm going to pray just now. I'm going to pray. And if that's you and you want to make a surrender, this is not an appeal for every person, although every person may stand. But if that's you and you desire to surrender to Christ and allow Him to work in your life through His Spirit and you want to make that commitment to Him, wherever you are, as I pray, I'm going to invite you to stand and that's going to signify to Jesus that you're surrendering to Him, you're surrendering your life and you're committing to Him to, to do active service for Him sometime or another. It may be that you're going to go to AFCO. It may be that you're going to go to Arise or some other school. Or it may be that you're going to get involved in your local church. It may mean some act of service that you're going to do for Jesus. You're going to surrender to Jesus and or you're going to commit to, to, to service over the next year. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you, if that's your, in your heart and that's your heart's desire, wherever you are, please stand. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, 
Lord, we pray earnestly for Your Spirit. Our deep desire is that You would fill us, that You would completely fill us with Your presence, with Your Spirit. Lord, today You see the young people, You see the old people, You see the middle-aged people making their stand for You. I pray, Lord, that You would empower them with Your Spirit, that You would cleanse them, that You will mold them, that You will shape them and do a magnificent work in their life. I ask, Lord, that Your Spirit would just draw near and that You would help us in those issues to surrender to You. And that not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next, that we would make that surrender to You and be rebaptized by Your Holy Spirit. Some of us may need to be baptized by water. Some of us need, may need to be rebaptized by water. And if that's so, Lord, I pray that You'll put in the hearts of those young people today. But whatever our unique situation is, I pray that Your Spirit would speak to us and convict us of right, sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And that You would fill us, You would give us an experience with You that will never die, that will never fade. This is our desire, Lord. And we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.